This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. We um, in the grip of a new religion and at the centre of this religion is the great God growth. And it's a ferocious God because you either subscribe to it or if you don't, and we don't have growth, then you'll have pestilence and unemployment and social insurrection. It's a very compelling religion, and it has the whole world by the throat. And the old religions, much as we might see people even fighting and killing over them, are secondary to this one, which has our 7.5 billion human beings in its thrall. That was Bob Brown. You're listening to Radio 3CR, and I'm Vivian Langford. Tonight's Beyond Zero Emissions show features a talk by Bob Brown. It was at the University of New South Wales where he was launching his book called Optimism. Bob tells a great yarn and woven into his stories is his experience that transformation is possible. If you think the game is up for climate, listen in. This is for you. So Paul and I are going back. The lambs have started arriving and uh, we're looking forward to doing the rounds tomorrow. Uh, and it's lovely to see Christine Bell, my um, great long-term friend, leader of the Greens, with us here tonight, with Emma. And uh, it's just great to see so many bright faces and happy people. Well, I'm uh, a very happy bloke. <laughs> I've... Um, left the Senate, I'm a bird out of the cage and uh, while it was an enormous privilege to be there for 16 years and before that 10 years in the Tasmanian Parliament and as you'll see I'm a great advocate of democracy I uh, am enjoying being out and about and uh, celebrating something that gets lost in our daily lives which is this planet that gives us everything we have and without which we are nothing, and which can do without us, but we can't do without it. So I want to... uh, I hope there's nobody from the Murdoch media here, but um, because (laughs) this seems to hurt them so much, I want to begin by tonight saying, fellow Earthians, uh, we are human beings, we're mammals, part of a historically large herd of seven and a half billion mammals on this one little speck in the universe, this planet Earth, amongst trillions of planets, so far as we know, and we have a long way to go in unfolding what's going on out there, 
the one place which has life, awareness, reflection, and the ability to celebrate and reach out for understanding as to what this is all about. It's unique, it's special, but it's fragile and it's certainly not guaranteed. And we've taken it upon ourselves to become managers of this one little speck of splendour in the universe. And in so far as we do, uh, we have so far shown a very poor record in being managers. When I came onto the planet in 1944, there were two and a half billion of us. An extraordinary pressure on the planet. But already, as I head for my 70th birthday, there are three times that many. And uh, you know the figures. If we extrapolate it out, the rest of the world catches up to our consumption in, in this Australia, the wealthiest in dollar terms, per capita group of people ever to exist on the face of the planet. Nobody matches us. And we have a modest 3% rate of growth. By the end of this century, there'll be a 300% greater consumption of the Earth's resources than there are now by this mammal herd. But already, we are consuming 120% of the living resources of the planet. That's why forests are going backwards. That's why fisheries are collapsing. That's why every morning we wake up to less arable land with more mouths, mammal, human mouths to feed than ever before. And it is simply not sustainable. But we are in the grip. Come on down, there's some seats over here. <laughs> Good to see you. We, we are in the grip of a new religion. And I had a little bit of a contretemps with the editor, the good Alison Hugh from Hardy Grant, for this book. She's a dairy farmer out near Warrnambool. And uh, thank goodness she did wonders with the words I gave her. But I insisted that materialism be capitalised. And at the centre of this religion is the great god growth. And that be capitalised as well. And it's a ferocious God because you either subscribe to it or if you don't and we don't have growth then you'll have pestilence and unemployment and social insurrection. It's a very compelling religion and it has the whole world by the throat. And the old religions, much as we might see people even fighting and killing over them, are secondary to this one which has us seven and a half billion human beings in its thrall and yet it is clearly not going to take us to anywhere but a, an enormous downfall and we have the God-given intelligence to avert that downfall and uh, if it is feasible for 10 billion because that's an estimate of how many people there will be by the end of this century when the population starts to steady and mercifully decrease. If it is sustainable for 10 billion of us to be on the planet, we have to work out how to do that on a planet where everybody knows what everybody else is doing and we have a shared living room and we have a shared destiny. And this is a frightening prospect. And I have a greater faith in the governance of the planet through we the people than I do through the current de facto governance, which is plutocracy. That is, rule by the rich, 
and plutolatry, which is idolisation of wealth. And currently we have a de facto governance by the military cartels, the People's Liberation Army, the Saudi royal family, Boeing, you know, BHP, News Corporation, uh, which is a much inferior way of looking after our future <clears throat> than five billion voting age people with the ballot box. But to get to that form of governance, we need to take on a recognition that everybody else on the planet is equal with us. Not better, not worse, but the great democratic principle which Abraham Lincoln espoused in his Gettysburg Address in 1859, which was that this carnage, effectively, I'm paraphrasing here, has been so that democracy should not disappear from, and his words, the earth. Winston Churchill said in 1947 that democracy is full of faults, but it's far better than whatever else has been tried. And that is true now. For example, if we had a referendum next Saturday on whether 10% of the $2 trillion spent on arms... and Please come down. There's some more seats over here, and we've got a little way to go. <laughs> so feel free. Come on down through the front, if you like. And there's, a couple, there's three or four seats here. Um, if... Uh, the, we were to uh, aim for this democracy on Saturday through a referendum with the question, should 10% of that $2 trillion spent on arms be instead put to giving every child on the planet a school to go to and food and water, the people of the world would vote yes. There's no doubt about that. But there's no way we're going to get that outcome with those who are currently ruling the world. And so it's having, uh, it's seeing quite clearly the common sense of that outcome coming down the line and the challenge to us to raise that prospect. It's nothing new. It's what the suffragettes did. What madness that women should get the vote. How could we run an economy, they thundered in the House of Lords, if women got anywhere near the purse strings? Well, in fact, as history shown, what madness and what stupidity for those who so vilified the suffragettes. The same with the slavery abolitionists and so many other reformers down through history. I'm um, very happy to be, through this book, I'm talking about a philosophy of a single human conscience working its way through democratic forms to sustaining the human presence on this planet into the future. I love human beings. Though one of my critics from the Murdoch media has said the trouble with Bob is he doesn't understand that human beings aren't very nice. <laughs> well, uh, uh, sure, uh, that's the case. But let's work on the best in humanity rather than the worst. And I think this planet is fabulous. Uh, in fact, I know it is. And, of course, it's the natural living face of this planet which gives us the creativity, the inspiration, the relaxation, the adventure that makes human life what it is. And I, I'm, uh, for example, 
have stood with Christine and others, no doubt from here, in uh, the rainforests of the Franklin and Gordon River in 1982, despairing that it could be saved from the bulldozers then at work. But through the modern advent of colour television, that river did flow into everybody's living rooms in Australia and the Australian people changed government. And 18 months after the bulldozers went into the valley, with both political parties in Tasmania behind them, both Houses of Parliament, all three newspapers, the unions, the churches silent, and so on, the Franklin River was saved. And it was an example, and Christine and I talk about this a lot, of when you're least expecting it, something dropping out of the sky. I use that analogy because people say, Bob, it's despairing this planet, and at the moment aren't we in a crook configuration? You look at the Ukraine, at Gaza, at uh, Iraq. Isn't it all hopeless? Well, no, it's no more hopeless than it was at any other time. But here's the question. Are we going to make it into the future through being despairing and depressed? Well, I tried that. <laughs> uh, when I was a youngster, uh, I... As I was growing older, I realised that I was homosexual. Now, I was already Presbyterian, and the two don't mix very well together. <laughs> and as I explain in the book, we were in the thrall of a sociopath called St Paul. And St Paul says in his letter to the Romans, and I learnt this at St Paul's Presbyterian Sunday School in Armidale, New South Wales, says in his letter to the Romans, men who lust after each other should be... Well, he actually adds women, by the way. Men who lust after each other should be put to death. A couple of verses later, he says, judge not lest ye be judged. <laughs> he goes on to say that women should be seen and not heard and do as their masters, whatever their masters, that is their husbands, uh, demand of them. And at the end, a little bit which gets so often forgotten from this benighted and bitter and twisted man from uh, about 40 to 100 AD, that maybe we shouldn't drink wine or eat meat. Now, maybe that's the better part of his injunctions. I don't know. Uh, but certainly, as a Presbyterian... This said to me, uh, as, as a young man who was gay, this said to me that I should be put to death. We'd ended the killing of homosexuals in Australia, but it was rampant after colonisation. And that echoes of that when two young fellows were hung in Iran in January this year simply because they loved each other. But it was still 20 years in prison. And uh, I was well aware... In the newspapers, almost every week, young men were being carted out of parks because that was the only place they could meet each other at night. And, uh, or uh, jailed and ruined. And I give a case of, in Launceston, a young fellow of 21, 1958. The neighbours dobbed them in. And the police arrived and said, who else is in this house? And he said, oh, my friend over here, also 21. And they said, 
let's say, uh, through the house. There was only one bed in the house. So they were taken off in disgrace. They couldn't talk with their families. No legal representation. Three years in jail for that. And, and one of the corollaries of this, and I'll keep coming back to this, is this country has transformed that hate and repression bequeathed down from St Paul and others so that we're on the threshold at the moment of having equal marriage. And 70% of Australians support it and the number keeps growing. And the body, body politics going to catch up. And indeed, because Julia Gillard wouldn't, I could never understand. Paul asked her about this when we were having a final dinner at the lodge with Julia and Tim. She was just set on not allowing equal marriage. She was no different in private to public about that, and it, and it was a glitch. But we, are, we have a whole government now, which I believe is a glitch. <laughs> but one of the aberrations of this <laughs> is that, extraordinarily enough, I think Tony Abbott uh, will allow a free vote and we will see equal marriage uh, because that's the, that's the way uh, this public is leading its representatives in this democracy. But that aside, here I was despairing back then, and you could read enough about it. You know, I, I went and had uh, electroconvulsion therapy and I had uh, shock therapy and I had testosterone injections to try and become heterosexual. It didn't put any more hair, hair on my chest. It simply left me empty of wallet and I couldn't go home. It got to the point of suicide and I was going to swim across Lake Burley Griffin and I love my family and I love my friends and I bought a ticket to London and that broke the circuit and over there I met this amongst the second lot of psychotherapy I went to psychologist, this young guy very good looking young man <coughs> on the southern side of the Thames who said Bob why don't you get over it be who you are go and meet other blokes you know celebrate this is an aberration. Uh, the society's wrong about this. I've never... I don't know who that fellow is, but certainly uh, if I could catch up with him now, I'd give him a hug. Stay tuned to 3CR for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're listening to Bob Brown, former senator for the Australian Greens and author of a new book called Optimism. He was speaking at the University of New South Wales. <laughs> and I ran into Paul Smith, Forrester, in 1976 in Launceston who said would you come down the Franklin River with me rafting I've asked dozens of people and they won't go I've heard that you're an adventurer so I'm going to ask you and I said well Paul if you come walking in the mountains with me I'll go down rafting the river and then got to thinking about two blokes out in the wilds seeing nobody else for a couple of weeks you get to talk about very intimate things and I was sick of fudging so I went to Paul and said, he, he, he was raising his family, said, Paul, uh, I've got to tell you, before we head off on this trip, I'm a homosexual. And he looked at me and a big smile on his face and he said, well, Bob, I'm not. <laughs> so that cleared the air on that one. But he said, I am a fisherman and I can tell a good-looking man the same as I can tell a good-looking trout. <laughs> and we laughed about that and uh, we've been good friends ever since and when we came back from this extraordinary experience in the wild great canyons eagles floating through the ravines ancient human pine trees platypuses coming up 
between our rafts. Nobody else for two weeks. And then round the corner into the Gordon and there were the jackhammers, explosions in the adits, helicopters, barges, getting ready to anchor a dam which was going to destroy the lot. And as a doctor, I and, and with a, a mother and a, a bush upbringing here in New South Wales, which had me enthralled with this power for our own rest, rest, restor, restoration as well as inspiration that nature gives us, I wondered whether I should stay in the surgery writing prescriptions for Valium uh, or for blood pressure pills or whether I really shouldn't get into the nascent wilderness society and help with the campaign to protect this storehouse of human enjoyment, relaxation and, and the rest um, with so many other people is history. The river was saved. But Paul said, coming back, Bob, you really should be public about your sexuality. So I took it into, took the big leap and I made it public. 1976, in the environment I've just been describing, which young men faced in those days in Australia. And I went up the road at Liffey. You'll see Liffey on the back of the book. It's uh, just a lovely, lovely place that I'd bought for $8,000 back in 1973. And I went to the good Baptist folk up the farmers up the road and arrived just as it was getting dark and knocked on their doors one after the other and I'd open the door and I'd say, hi Bob from down the road. Yeah, I'm just here to tell you I'm a homosexual. <laughs> well, they were universally good about it, you see. Uh, and one... Uh, wife nodded to her husband and said, yes, we think we've got an uncle like that. <laughs> but then uh, it became public and uh, the letters arrived, uh, quoting Romans 1, you're going to burn in hell, you will suffer this and that. But the lovely letters too, from women and men, saying, I can't tell anybody else, but so am I. And I have this attachment, or I have done this, and I, I am... Just so happy that somebody in... I was a doctor. Uh, and, and the headline in the examiner was, Doctor Says He's Gay. Now, that was a very pejorative term in those days. And I'd actually never seen it in print before. Uh, but I, got, I, I learned to live with it, and for many years, copped it after that. Stay tuned to 3CR for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're listening to Bob Brown, former Senator for the Australian Greens and author of a new book called Optimism. He was speaking at the University of New South Wales. But life uh, got better. The genie was out of the bottle. And back at that time, I had another experience which I've carried with me all through my life. I went into the Tarkine wilderness when I was 26 with a dairy farmer from Tawada, uh, we were looking for the Tasmanian tiger, which had apparently become extinct. I thought it was. James Malley, my uh, companion, thought it wasn't. And we were going to catch tigers down in the middle of the Tarkine wilderness. And to cut a long story short, the rivers were flooded and we had some uh, excitement getting safely back out of that magnificent rainforested wilderness. And he went back to, f to milk the cows in time he had somebody in for a couple of days but then had to be there and I went and finished the purchase on the house at Liffey $8,000 20 
27 acres full of wild, wonderful creatures like the white goshawk, platypuses in the river, a mountain behind which is towers three Empire State buildings above the house and is snow-capped in winter. And this joyous place, Ura Ura, uh, black cockatoo in Tasmanian Aboriginal, which was to be my anchor for the years to come. And James dropped me off at the Alveston bus stop to get a ride back to Liffey, or to Launceston, where I was practising medicine. And there was a, uh, an old gentleman there with white hair. Uh, and the bus was late. So we got talking to each other, and I told him about purchasing this place at Liffey, and he was so happy to this young man that I was so happy about the natural values that I, I saw in Liffey. And he told me his own story. He'd just been riding his bicycle up the Great Divide. He'd come across on the ferry. Uh, when he got to Cooma, he had saddle sores. So he laid himself up. He found a barn which had hay in it, and he lay in there until he got better. And he knew how to live on nothing in the bush. And he got up as far as west of Brisbane, and there was a compelling reason pulling him back to Tasmania. And he turned his bike rack and rode back down and went across on the ferry back to Tasmania. And the story of that compelling wish to get back to Tasmania is seared into my own heart. This old man, John, had been the grandson of a convict brought in chains to Tasmania. And his father uh, had been a brute. But they'd carved out a farm on the edge of the Tarkine wilderness. And when he was 15, John went traipsing through the rainforest to the nearby river where he was secretly meeting the girl from next door. <laughs> and he was smitten. And I say in the book, I can see them disrobing and going for a swim in the river in this idyllic setting in the forest. And horror was about to strike. His father followed him with a lump of 4 by 2 sharp-edged wood and he smashed him to pieces, left him for dead on the side of the bank. He had his fractured skull was leaking into the grass and his mother found him and she took the broken boy home and she nursed him and he survived. And after a few days, when he regained consciousness, he jumped out the window and with his broken bones headed into the forest to escape the ogre, which was his father. And this fellow lived out in the bush, 15 years old, lived out in the bush, first on raw animals and berries, then he stole some matches and he could cook, and he stole bread from outlying farms, and he stayed there for some years on his own, and then he got a job in the mine, but he never forgot that girl. He knew where his father was and stayed a distance. And he lived his life in love with that girl that he could never reach again. He saw her once at a country fair, but she didn't see him. He picked up a newspaper once, and although he couldn't read, there was a picture of that girl with her family, some school thing happening in northwest Tasmania, and he took the picture and kept it in his pocket. And later he read that she was a grandmother, and he told me how happy he was that her life had turned out so well. And this lovely old gentleman, who should have been bitter 
and twisted and hateful. And the Bible says, passing on the sins of the fathers go on to the sons, down to the fifth generation. Well, whether it was his mother or something in himself, he broke that. And this guy was such a lovely old gentleman who'd lived in unrequited love and lived in delight and the light of that love. And I say, as I say in the book, I'm... he was headed for Launceston Hospital on the bus and he had an illness which wasn't going to give him much longer on the planet. And I couldn't contact him afterwards because he had no address. But 40 years later, it's just such a privilege in this book to be able to write about a human being who, despite the horrific circumstances that he endured, kept loving uh, one human being, but a good relationship with everybody and with the planet. And if he can do that, surely seven and a half billion of the rest of us can do it as well. And it starts with celebrating the planet itself. We don't pay homage to it. We're so busy in this age of materialism seeing what we can get off it now. I quote Jimi Hendrix, whose body was brought up to the hospital where I was in London in 1970 after he'd overdosed. Just 27 and a genius of the guitar. What I didn't know was his philosophical genius, this poet of the earth. He said, I'm a citizen of the earth. And at the end of the chapter on Jimi Hendrix, I just quote, because it encapsulates so much, this phrase of his, in the long run, we are all our own children. And if we, and I also quote the, the contemporary American poet, Drew Dellinger, who says, I'll do my best with this, it's his poem, Hieroglyphic Stairway. It's 3.23am and I can't sleep because my great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. They come to me in my dreams and they say, what did you do when the season started changing? What did you do when the mammals and the reptiles and the birds were being driven to extinction? Did you go onto the street and protest when democracy was sold? What did you do? And that's the question that confronts us all particularly in this wealthiest society that's ever existed on the face of the planet, which has a long-established democracy and a huge standard of education compared with all our fair bear, forebears and most of our contemporaries. And I'm sure it begins with stopping long enough to celebrate what it is that gives us life and existence. What feeds the great symphonies, the great works of literature, the great prowess on the sporting field and it's this planet itself and in celebrating the planet we'll get back if we can only do it to making sure that we look after it and therefore look after the interests of our great grandchildren. Bob said he noticed that although every nation has an anthem there's no anthem for the planet. This is his song called Earth Song sung by Claire Dawson. This is a planet, life's only cradle, warmed by the sunlight, it gave us birth, and in the morning. 
that magic feeling alive on earth. Eagles are soaring above the mountains, whale songs are sounding deep in the sea. And in a city, technology which um, is part of the genius of people who are working to capture the, the planet and translate it to us all. And yet, on September last year, 90% of us Australians voted for six mega coal ports inside the Great Barrier Reef to have tankers for coal and coal seam gas and I read in the Qantas journal coming up in the plane that South Korea is currently building for Australia a coal seam gas ship which will be 40% longer than the largest passenger liner on Earth, the Queen Mary II, so that we can hurry fossil fuels to the rest of the planet to triple if the Galilee Basin coal deposits in Queensland are fully exploited the per capita pollution of the atmosphere with greenhouse gases that we know are going to wreck the food production of the land and planet, let alone the acidification of the ocean and all the other things that come with it. And the best economic estimate is that if we use 2% of our current wealth, we'd stop climate change in its tracks, global warming in its tracks. But if we don't, and we voted for a government in this country that's reversing the good work that Christine Milne and others did with the Gillard government to get in place 
the best legislation so far around the planet as a hedge against the uh, onrush of climate change, uh, if we don't, our grandchildren, those very people that the poet writes about, will be paying up to 20% of their wealth just to deal with the changes which no longer are able to be offset due to our indolence and selfishness back in 2014 and 2013 when 90% of Australians voted for that outcome. Now, I don't think Australians wanted that outcome. The problem is the environment, which understraps everything, including our economy and employment, was put over there, while a three-word mantras, no carbon tax. In fact, what was voted there was that the carbon tax be taken off the largely foreign-owned polluting companies, and it was to be used for renewable energy, and instead we taxpayers pay them billions of dollars under Tony Abbott's direct action in the hope that they'll reduce pollution. That's what the outcome was. You wouldn't know that from reading the Murdoch media, for example. However, that's, I believe in democracy. As I said earlier, I think this is a glitch. And every three years we get the opportunity to change. But until we, as a people here in Australia and round the planet, go to the ballot box in democracies, putting our great-grandchildren's interests at the forefront... We are getting it wrong, and we'll continue to. And they will wake us at 3.23 in the morning saying, where were you when all this was happening? Stay tuned to 3CR for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're listening to Bob Brown, former senator for the Australian Greens and author of a new book called Optimism. He was speaking at the University of New South Wales. I, ask, uh, I get asked a lot by young folk, and I was began this trip with 400 right 16-year-olds at Byron Bay from high schools in northeast New South Wales. And they're a terrific lot. And they want to know, why aren't you depressed? Because they're looking at the world as it is. Now, I explain about my own period of 10 years depression and how it gets you nowhere. Uh, but a couple of things about that, ladies and gentlemen. Firstly is... Optimism leads to action, depression leads to failure. We know that in business. Go into a business with optimism and you're much more likely to succeed than if you go into it with pessimism. We should apply exactly the same philosophy to the future of the planet. We have to put our optimistic... We don't know what the future's going to be, but optimism will make it a better turnout than pessimism. And as Bertrand Russell said, and I quote him in the introduction... The problem, British philosopher, mid-last century, the problem with the world is that the stupid... This is no comment on current Australian politics because it was written 50 years ago. The, current, the problem with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligence are full of self-doubt. Well, get over it. <laughs> because being, getting rid of that self-doubt giving yourself the same confidence that you would ascribe to the stupid who are cocksure is absolutely essential if we're going to make it on this planet. And the other thing is, uh, is anxiety and the failure to think that we've got time knocks people out everywhere. Well, get over that as well. Have a good time. Travel. 
I said in the book that I had 2,000 trips when I was in the Senate, and there it was in the Australian. It's the only comment in the column over on the right. <laughs> Bob Brown, what a what an environmentalist. He's had 2,000 plane trips. Well, uh, yes, and uh, absolutely, because that was essential to becoming a, a green alternative voice in an Australian parliament that absolutely needs alternative voices and find good companionship. I never thought when I was rattled with depression and knocked out as a youngster and in that hostile environment that I would, in the 1990s, after in my break between parliaments, run into a splendid fellow who's a farmer and a doyen of the arts of his own sort in southern Tasmania and have this wonderful relationship that I've had in the last 20 years which has fed my optimism all over the place. Paul and I went uh, grey nomading over the last three months because it's between the summer shearing and the lambs which are just starting to ripen. in Tassie. We're going back in the morning to go around them and there's a couple of stories about that in there. But the social commentators at the Signet pub where south of Hobart said, what? You've just bought a Subaru roadside. We're not taking a caravan. We're going to sleep out under the stars. Just the two of you together for three months. You'll be home in a fortnight on separate planes. <laughs> well, it wasn't the case. We had a wonderful time. Each day out in the Bush Heritage Blocks in western New South Wales and western Queensland, billabongs, dingoes, emus, brolgers, the, the fantastic Simpson Desert... Uh, it was just a joy to be alive and sleeping there under these brilliant clear skies that we are so blessed with in the southern hemisphere and I've never been happier but I wouldn't be if I wasn't a campaigner and I can just uh, say this that on Saturday the little foundation I've set up hosted the meeting in the city hall in Hobart we expected we might get a hundred people Instead of that, 900 turned up. Why? Because in the absurdity of the overrun of destruction of this planet, the newly elected Liberal government in Tasmania has brought in a set of new laws which have gone through the lower house and are headed to the upper house, which says this, that if you stand peaceably in front of a chainsaw going to wreck an ancient forest full of rare and endangered species... The judge must fine you. It's a mandatory sentence of $5,000. And if you do it a second time, stand peaceably in front of a chainsaw or a bulldozer going to wreck this ancient forest which has never seen such destruction before, you will be jailed for three months minimum. The judge has no choice. Mandatory sentencing. We don't have it for child abuse. We don't have it for violent crimes. But we have it for citizens who get in the way of this final destruction of the living fabric of the planet. And the question to all of us is, what are we going to do? Do we hear that voice of our great-grandchildren calling to us? And as I said on Saturday, Eric Abetz can take my pension. Will Hodgman, the Premier of Tasmania, can come and take my property. Paul Harris, a very Christian gentleman who devised these laws in the upper house, can take my freedom. But they cannot imprison our consciences and they cannot take from us our love of the planet. And I talk about 
the fantastic white goshawk in the book, which flies through the forest, and the, she's a, a sight to behold with her red eye, like a snowflake through the canopy, down, down, down in numbers as we cut the forest from under, uh, as headed for extinction. Am I going to stand aside as the chainsaws approach the last bastion of this fabulous creature because they threaten us with fines and jail for doing what our God-given brain tells us we must do and it's defend what is left of the planet's natural order and pursue a social justice for all of us 7.5 billion who on earth do dwell. It's a question which confronts us all and each in our own way. Many can't go. Raising families, have businesses. All of us can support groups like Medicine Sans Frontier, Sea Shepherd Australia, which it sounds like may have to go south to defend the whales from the illegal Japanese whalers yet again. The people standing firm, including fifth-generation farmers, against the destruction of the Laird State Forest up there near Gunnedah by a coal company, all of us have to make a decision as to whether we will fund these folk with patch-in-the-pants bank accounts against the onrush of the rich and the powerful. That onrush which is destroying the birthright of those people who come after us. I'm uh, optimistic that we will do that. And I know that optimism and defiance and a caring attitude to the planet is what is going to get us there. I'm, uh, that's why I'm writing songs about the planet. That's why I've written this book and I thank Hardy Grant for putting the idea of anecdotes ahead. I didn't want to write an autobiography. And that's why I'm enjoying the good company of my partner travelling the country, being out under the stars and remembering what it is that gives us life, creativity, inspiration and adventure. This one little planet of ours and it's in our own hands. Stay tuned to 3CR for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're listening to Bob Brown, former senator for the Australian Greens and author of a new book called Optimism. He was speaking at the University of New South Wales. Someone asked a question about the role of investment in projects that support the planet. I'll be hosting uh, with others a new business organisation in the coming weeks here in Sydney for businesses that want to be involved in financing just that line of thinking and in uh, looking at supporting environmentalists who are wanting to protect the planet because they're legion. There isn't this divide between business and greens. It's uh, a, an intelligent reaction to what's happening on the planet and it's, it's a broad, let me tell you, in the uh, realms of business and getting folk together who recognise that they think the same way. They're worried about their grandchildren. They're worried about the planet as well is suddenly a, a rising area in business and it's going to be uh, those, those businesses that take care of the environment are going to be the most prosperous as we move further into the century. Another question was about why Parliament seems so stuck and doesn't represent the diversity of views in our society. And, and proportional representation is what we should have because it's fairer, but you put that to a house dominated by Labor and Liberal representatives and they'll get together and they'll, they'll bat that out and it won't get reported in the media, by the way. I know that from advocating it in the Senate on a number of occasions. It'll, we'll get it when people demand it. So letters to the paper, uh, join the Proportional Representation Society, 
uh, demand your vote be equal to, uh, if you do vote Green or if you vote PUP or if you vote Independent, be equal to the votes of those of the big parties. It's not until we get proportional representation in houses of government as European. There's never been a majority in the, in the Parliament of Denmark since the Second World War, and look at it. You know, it's, it's one of the most enlightened and progressive countries on the face of the planet. So we get past this junk idea that multiple parties are somehow uh, a difficulty. It's anti-public, it's anti-intellectual, and it's anti-democratic, uh, but it's legion, not least in the editorial columns of The Australian. <laughs> on the Barrier Reef, I, I, I've already spoken about it, but there's none of us here who uh, can't lift a pen and, and uh, call our local federal member of parliament and say, will you cross the floor over this? Labor licensed the mega gas port on Curtis Island in World Heritage in the Great Barrier Reef. The Liberals are backing that up with licensing the eponymous Abbott Point for Clive Palmer and Gina... Not Bolly Bridget at the word. <laughs> Reinhardt and Mr Adani from uh, Italy to send their coal through that port, dumping the spoil on the Great Barrier Reef. I said earlier, 90% of Australians voted for that at the last election. Now, uh, the job is to expand that, to uh, uh, reduce that to 85% next time, 80% the time after that, and not to hopefully have to wait for the full catastrophe. The Barrier Reef is half gone. And acidification of the ocean through burning the coal that they want to eat, and the, and the, and the uh, I read the Thin Review yesterday on how the chief scientist of New South Wales is going to bring out a report saying coal seam gas is not as bad as long wall coal mining. Well, Madam Chief Scientist, is it as is it not worse than renewable energy? That's the question. And until she understands that she should be looking at what's better to disqualify coal seam gas rather than what's worse, to give a tick of approval to it, she has lost the plot. That scientist, chief scientist in New South Wales, and needs to be told so. Now, whether the Finn Review will print my letter tomorrow or not, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, to everything you see like that, we have a pen, we have an email system, we have an ability to phone up. Uh, put the problems that are too hard on the shelf. Uh, optimism is a very important motivator and I am optimistic that we can turn around the fortunes of the Great Barrier Reef but not if we feel hopeless uh, however, that said I understand if you do feel hopeless it is a choice and it's a tough one for us I'm full of uh, the optimism and action I like it a lot better The last question was about getting tired of campaigning Bob became quite stern at that he said, there's no such thing as fatigue when we are so blessed and lucky in this country. He urged us all to take action. I will put a link to many of the organisations that are taking action to the podcast on Beyond Zero Emissions website. But if you've listened to this show and you think, well, I could ring an MP, I could write a letter to somebody in power, whether it's a local council or your state government representative, please just do yourself, give yourself a little homework to go and find out their phone numbers, find out their email and approach them. 
Just a simple uh, phone call is often a very good way to get through, better than waiting for a sort of non-response. So just listen to this answer. This is the last answer from Bob Brown about campaigning. Uh, in other words, giving priority to one place that's threatened so that others may be protected. The same with those coal ports inside the Great Barrier Reef. The same with the now imminent destruction of uh, forests and the Tarkine in Tasmania due to mining. We can't cover the lot. And there are so many problems on Earth that we can't deal with. But when there's one in hand and nearby, uh, a little bit of time, half an hour given to that once a week, by writing a cheque, a letter to the newspaper or ringing the local politician does wonders. But most of us think, oh no, I'm not going to do that because it's hopeless. And that just simply feeds a feeling inside of us that we're not doing anything about it. It's all too hard. We've got to turn around on that. And uh, I'd invite everybody here to think about what they can do for the Laird State Forest. Having been there, uh, what a beautiful place. What a stupidity to destroy that, and it can't be gotten back, to further pollute the atmosphere for people who don't care, have hadn't been there largely, and don't care about it. And uh, all in our own time, though. And uh, the idea that we're fatigued, really? Uh, we'd be a bit more fatigued if we were dealing with circumstances that people have in Afghanistan or Iraq or the Ukraine at the moment. We're very lucky, we're very well off, we're very energetic, and none of us is fatigued. By the way, I think that anybody who votes Labor or Liberal in next March's election, and both parties support destruction of the lead forest, becomes part of the destruction of the lead forest. Uh, we all have to think, I'm just being straight out about that. I, I, am, uh, I have people say to me, well, who else could you vote for? Uh, well, besides, <laughs> you know, besides being a Green, you can ring up every candidate in your electorate and say, Will you, this is important, not what do you think about the Laird Forest. so easy to say, oh, I don't like it. Will you cross the floor on this issue? That's the pertinent question. And if they can't say yes to that, say, well, I'm not going to vote for you. I'm, I'll pass to the next person. There's an election coming up in March. Time to get on the phones to the candidates. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Thanks to Bob Brown for giving us permission to broadcast his talk. I hope you read his new book called Optimism. More importantly, get involved with campaigns to save the Laird State Forest from Whitehoven coal. Divest your super or change your bank if they are invested in the products that cook the planet. Ring members of parliament about keeping the target for renewable energy and extending it. Websites to help you are Greenpeace for the Great Barrier Reef campaign, Lock the Gates Alliance for saving the Laird State Forests and stopping coal seam gas on farming land, Solar Citizens to keep us on track with renewable energy, and for research and talks and podcasts go to beyond zero emissions thanks to esther sarkadi who invited me to hear bob's talk and to our production team tonight miwa tomanaga jane rudman roger vise and glenn fernandez we all work together and many are behind the scenes but it's an enthusiastic team and we welcome feedback from you listeners stay tuned after the break to save albert park